This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Today we have a wonderful reading for you with Vikram Chandra, who was born in New Delhi and came to California as an undergrad to study at Pomona College. He then attended the film school at Columbia, but left halfway through to begin work on his first novel, Red Earth and Pouring Rain, which went on to receive the Commonwealth Writers' Prize for Best First Book and the David Higgum Prize for Fiction. A collection of short stories, Love and Logging in Bombay, was published in 1997, also receiving rave reviews and inclusion on some of the most exclusive lists, including the New York Times Book Review's Notable Books of 1997 and the Independent's Best Books of the Year. Chandra holds an MA from Johns Hopkins and an MFA, both in creative writing, from the University of Houston. We are fortunate enough to have him here at Cal, where he is currently teaching literature and creative writing in the English department. Today, Chandra will read from his most recent novel, Sacred Games, but he's promised me he's not going to read the whole thing. (laughs) There's so much press on this book that it was difficult to pick the quote I felt most representative of the book as a whole, but this was one of my favorites, and it's from Alex Clark of The Observer. Chandra's achievement is to take this violent scene and place it in a kaleidoscope, sending sending us off in myriad directions to watch as patterns unfold, merge, and separate. Sacred Games delivers on its promises, not least in the exuberance of its language, which is full of Indian vernacular. The best way to read the novel is simply to surrender to its seductive sprawl. And I invite you to do that now. Please join me in welcoming Vikram Chandra. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for coming out today. Um, When you go on book tour, as I've been on for almost a year and a half now in various places, you soon develop a kind of shtick. (laughs) And what happens is that through trial and error, you find sections which are good to read. Um, and, and so you try and look for sections that don't need much setup um, and which sort of hold them, you know, they work as a whole. And so for the last year and a half, I've been reading the same three sections. <laughs> one is set in a police station in Bombay. One is a gangster in a jail. And the third is from a, a woman who I guess one would call a civilian. Um, and so you get a sort of variation of of landscapes and you get various emotional registers. But my wife has been working on me for the last month and saying that it would be rude to you to read that same thing again because I've probably read it somewhere around here, Berkeley in San Francisco, 10 times by now. (laughs) So what I'm going to do is try an experiment and read something else that I've never read from this book. So you're the first to hear this out aloud. Um, This section actually does need some setup. I'm sorry about that, but... uh, I have to tell you where we are. So the book is a book about organized crime in India, in contemporary India, and one of the protagonists is a police inspector named Sartaj Singh. Uh, uh, He's a Sikh in his 40s. Um, He has a fairly close relationship with his mother, who's now pretty old, but there's parts of her life that he knows absolutely nothing about, and especially what happened to their family during the terrors of partition. 
Um, but you as the reader do go back um, to the time um, of the middle 40s uh, when things started to get really bad in the Indian subcontinent. So I'm going to read to you a little section of Sartaj's mother's life um, when she's 11 years old, living in a small town in western Punjab, uh, which is now Pakistan. Um, and let me see, I made notes about what I need to tell you. There's some characters who enter. Um, so little Prabhjot Kaur is 11 years old. Um, her fa- she lives with her father and mother, uh, who are referred to as Papaji and Mataji. Um, and uh, the, f- the parents, after a kind of lifetime of effort, have finally managed to build their own house. Um, She's the youngest of five children. Um, she has two older sisters. Uh, one is Prabhjot, uh, I'm sorry, um, Navneet, who's the oldest, who's engaged to be married, and Mani, who's the middle sister. She has two brothers, um, Iqbal and Alok, who are the oldest, um, who are great sportsmen. They're sort of um, well-known in this little town as, as being very good at cricket and so on. Uh, and then there's a man named Darak Ali who drives... Um, uh, little Prabhjot Kaur and two of her friends to school every day in a, in a tanga, which is a horse carriage, I guess you would call it. Um, in those days, they were used as public taxis. Um, and then finally, I know there's a lot of names, but you'll, you'll get this. Uh, Rampari uh, is the woman who is the maid of all work in this house, and she's got nine children and an absent husband, and she's managed to persuade uh, Prabhjot Kaur's mother, Mataji, to live, let her live behind their new house um, in the little garden with her nine kids. Okay. <laughs> Don't worry. You'll, you'll see how it works. All right, so this is Prabhjot Kaur. Uh, why were old people sad? Mostly, Prabhjot Kaur had no idea. Mataji had running feuds with aunts and cousins and neighbors, and sometimes she muttered about them and went on the whole day about some ancient betrayal or slight. But there were other days when, for no visible reason, she was just beset by sighs and a powdery sadness that paled her face. Even Navneet Benji had days when she seemed silenced by a shapeless melancholy, even after the engagement and the letters from her fiancé had made her languorous and lovely. So Prabhjot Kaur didn't think much of Papaji's mood. The next morning, he seemed back to his normal, sprightly self. There were workmen at the back of the house, and as she was leaving, Prabhjot gathered they were to put grills over the wooden shutters on the windows. What she found when she got home uh, up from school were more like bars, thick rectangular lengths of iron that sat squarely across the windows and up and down. They'll be painted green when they finish, Papaji said, like the shutters. But now Prabhjot Kaur's window didn't even open all the way, so that Rampari's family was hidden from her. She pointed this out to Papaji, this inefficiency in the construction, and incredibly enough, all he said was, there's no time to fix it now, Beta, and the window opens all the way, almost. This was the same man who had sent four cartloads of brick take back to the supplier because they weren't exactly what he had paid for. 
<clears throat> Prabhjot Kaur was going to talk about all this the next morning with Manjit and Asha, but when she got into the Tanga, she was amazed to find herself followed by Iqbal Virji, who swung himself into the front seat and sat next to Darak Ali, with his cricket bat between his knees and the handle held between two large-fisted hands. He didn't say a word all the way to school, and the three girls sat with their heads half-turned, and nobody in the Tanga spoke. Only after they were inside did Manjit snap her head and signal a conclave, and they found a corner to stand in with their shoulders hunched together and foreheads almost leaning against each other. And she whispered, in Meenapur, there were three murders last night. Three Hindus were killed. She was trembling. Prabhjot Gaur could feel Manjit's elbow twitching against her arm. One was a girl, she said. Prabhjot Kaur couldn't even learn part of a lesson the whole day. She didn't write a word in her notebooks, and during recess, the girls in the whole school stood around in huddles, and not one game of Kiri Kara was started. When the final bell rang and they all came to the gate, Prabhjot Kaur saw Iqbal Virji standing by the Tanga and felt a relief so gigantic that she ran forward to him and stood a step away from him almost in tears until he put a hand on her head and walked her back around to the seat. Now there was that silence again, thick and uncomfortable as woolen blankets in the summer, and Darakali didn't say one word to Shagufta, the horse, which frightened Prabhjot Kaur more than anything else. The streets seemed less crowded than usual, and Prabhjot Kaur could see that people weren't saying a thing to each other. Nobody lingered on street corners or in front of shops to talk. When the Tanga finally turned the corner and she saw the familiar tall rectangle of the gate, Prabhjot Kaur exulted in a, hum, in a huge warm gush of safety, which felt like a rising bath of honey, all cushiony and caressing against her skin. She ran inside and hugged Navneet Bhenji and sat close to her and drank down an enormous tumbler of milk without even a squeak of ritual protest, gurgling it down in one long run of gulps. Only when the last drop was gone did she notice that Iqbal Virji had gone on in the Tanga to escort Asha home. That night, she was glad of the bars for the metal which at least held away dread, even though it couldn't make the fear vanish. She felt lucky she didn't have to sleep outside. The light pressed on her face and she was awake. The courtyard was bright outside and she knew it was late in the morning, very late. When she saw the time in the clock on the mantelpiece, her heart thumped. The first assembly bell would ring in less than 10 minutes. She threw herself out of the bed and ran through the door. Why didn't you wake me? She gasped at Mataji. It's so late. Mataji reached out a hand. It's all right, Beta, she said, her voice soft. There's no school today or college. Everything is shut. Why? There's some trouble in town. Go and wash your face and then eat. She reached out further and touched Prabhjot Kaur's hand, held her by the wrist a little. Go, she said. It was the quietest holiday Prabhjot Kaur had ever had. She stayed inside her room, arranging her books and cleaning out her school bag. But at 11, she couldn't stand it anymore and tiptoed through the house and slipped out of the front door. Standing by the gate, she could feel an absolute lack of motion in the streets, as if everyone had made an agreement and left town simultaneously. And yet she knew they were all there. She went back through the gate and walked around the house, 
and in the rear, all of Rampari's brood were huddled together, even Natwar, who was usually bouncing about the lanes on filthy, bare feet, wrapped in some mysterious secret life Prabhjot Kaur knew absolutely nothing about. Go inside, Nikki, Rampari said. You shouldn't be out here. Stay inside the house. Why? Bad things are happening, Nikki. Rampari was looking straight at the, at the rear garden wall, and Prabhjot Kaur saw that it was just that what had just been an untidy lane beyond, an insignificant ribbon of parched mud covered by a perpetual shifting mist of scraps of paper, was now, even in bright daylight, a darkness from which danger came. Prabhjot Kaur studied the top of the wall and wondered if it was high enough. She wanted to go and stand at its foot to measure its height and so its protection. But now the garden seemed a foreign wilderness, and she couldn't make herself step off the brick onto the earth. She nodded and went back inside and sat herself on her bed, cross-legged. She was waiting now and didn't know for what. Lunch was also a hushed affair, with everyone speaking in low tones and Navneet Bhanji not saying a word at all. Papaji and the two brothers sat in a tight little circle and spoke with their heads lowered. Afterwards, it was back to the bed for Prabhjot Kaur and more sitting and then lying down with her heels drumming against the bed cover. Will you stop that? Money burst out. You're driving me mad. Madness was what Prabhjot Kaur felt pooling behind her shoulder blades in that afternoon that passed like a slow procession of ants crawling up her leg. So when the chain at the front gate rattled, the metal sound of it echoed through the house and into Prabhjot Kaur's head, and she felt a violent spasm of fear, but it was also a relief. Mani was twisted up onto her elbows, her mouth wide open, and her neck a bunched bundle of thin ropes just under the skin. Prabhjot Kaur leapt from the bed and ran. She reached the door and swung out with a hand on a wall and saw Iqbal Virji and Alok Virji going through the gate and Papaji stepping out. She ran forward and saw Papaji standing on the other side of the lane, craning his neck, and there were running feet and the hubbub of voices. Now there was a quick panting next to her, and she saw that it was Natwar. They leaned together against the gate. He had eyes as bright as black agates. He slipped past her and was out into the lane. Without a moment's hesitation, she went after him and was instantly in the shelter of a group of running men. She kept her eye on Natwar and followed his dodges through the crowd, his sudden swerves and cuts amongst the huffing bodies. Now they came to a gathering halt in a dense crowd. Natwar reached without looking back and pulled her through, bumping her heads on hips and buttocks. She fell, out of, she fell out of the jostle and forward, stubbing her nose on Natwar's shoulder, and the way was clear before them. Atanga stood, tilted forward at an angle she had never seen. Tangled in the harness and traces lay a horse, its neck craning forward in a taut curve, as if it were trying desperately to inch along the ground, pull itself along. It was Shagufta. Prabhjot Kaur saw this straight away. Shagufta's lips were curled back, exposing the huge teeth in a rictus of effort. The front legs were curled together. The back ones were splayed out open, and between them and over them spilled fat blue coils from her belly. Prabhjot Kaur could see straight into Shagufta, into the cavity which was the color of a very ripe winter jamun. 
The stuff from inside had come out as if with force, and even though it was not moving, Prabhjot Kaur felt it was forcing itself out from the body, boiling over in oily billows. The road under the tanga was black and wet. On the other side of the tanga, as far away from it as Prabhjot Kaur, was a heaving crowd of men, Muslim men, all of them. She knew this somehow. It wasn't the clothes alone, and at their front she could see Darakali. He was shouting something, and Prabhjot Kaur could see his teeth. All their mouths were open, and she could see the white shine of teeth. The crowd was coming forward in small jerks and then going back. A shove in Prabhjot Kaur's back moved her forward, and she saw that Shagufta's eyes were wide open and moist. She thought now that Shagufta was still alive and was stepping up to her when she was lifted by her arm, twisted and lifted by it, and she cried out in pain. It was Papaji. He ran her back through the crowd, held against his side. He ran and ran. All through the lane, she felt his fingers hard on her arm. Inside the gate, inside the courtyard, at home again, he took her by the shoulder and shook her, and his own head was moving back and forth, and his face was sweaty and pulled and pushed by his anger. Prabhjot Kaur saw only a blur. Why did you go out, he said, and slapped her. Why did you go out? Why? Let her be, Navneet Benji said, and took Prabhjot Kaur to her bed. She laid her down and then climbed onto the bed and held Prabhjot Kaur's head in her lap. She was stroking Prabhjot Kaur's face and shoulders, and Prabhjot Kaur could feel her fluttering heart. Mani was sitting on the floor, her knees up and her back up against the wall. Mataji came in and shut the door quickly and put up the chain. She sat on the bed, her head covered with her dupatta. In the distance, they could hear a confused and continuous shouting, like the steady crackle of a dim fire. Vaheguru, Vaheguru, Mataji said. They sat together until dark, and then it was quiet. After that night, none of the women went out. Prabhjot Kaur hardly even left her bed. She came out to eat and ran back to it, went out when called by Mataji, but then sidled away as soon as possible. Papaji came and sat cross-legged with, her, with a pillow over his lap and teased her and made her laugh and tickled the soles of her feet. And she understood he was apologizing for his moment of panic, and she was able to go out into the courtyard with her hand in his. But despite herself, she grew anxious out in the open. She got a feeling in the middle of her chest as if a hard bubble was expanding to the size of an onion, making it hard to breathe. She came back fast into her room. The white walls made her feel better and the bars. She looked out of the window sometimes to find Rampari and Natwar and all the rest huddled below, but she avoided raising her eyes to the garden and what lay beyond. When she turned around and she was securely in the room on her bed, she was all right. Outside, men and women were killed every night and every day. Prabhjot Kaur knew what this was called, Kun. Prabhjot Kaur held the word on her tongue, and to her it felt like a square metal machine with a gaping hole in the center, dripping with viscous fluids and sharp edges glinting. Manjit had shown her this thing in a senior class history book once, this engine of death, and now it came back to Prabhjot Kaur. Khun. Papaji and the brothers came into the house laden with the names of those who were already gone. A sardar named Jasjeet Singh Aluwalia on the corner where Pakmara Street ran into Campbell Road. 
slashed to hanging bits by men with swords. Ramesh Kriplani, age 16, found with his throat expertly cut around, head hanging into the gutter so that Ali Jaffa Road was not sullied by a drop of blood. They say a butcher from Karsan Ganj did it, Alok Virji said, caught him on the way home from his chacha's house. Khun. There were more, many more. Mataji and her daughters listened to the lengthening list. On the day that the final exams would have started, Rampari's husband was killed. He was one of the three looters shot by the police on Larkin Road at 6 a.m. Prabhjot Kaur heard about this the next day, first as a rumor, then as a certainty. A wailing rose behind the house, a blurred chorus that rose and fell, and there was nowhere to escape it, and Prabhjot Kaur learned for the first time his name, Kuldish. All through the day, they mourned Kuldish, the bad man who had never come to see Rampari, and the wails slid under Prabhjot Kaur's skin and made her shiver. That evening, Mataji told the brothers to stay home, not to go out to the street, and Iqbal Virji laughed, and the sound fell into the room with a clank like iron. The brothers left anyway, and Alok Virji glanced back as he shut the door, and Prabhjot Kaur saw that he looked at her, all of them, his sisters and mother, with anger and something very much like contempt. Mataji began to curse Muslims. No one can ever live with these people, she said. They are incapable of living peacefully with anyone. Her face was suffused with blood, flushed and thickened by it. Dirty, lying people, she said. Prabhjot Kaur made lists in her mind of the Muslims she knew. Darak Ali, of course. Papaji's friend, Khudabaksh Shafi, who came to visit always with baskets of strawberries or apples or mangoes, and all his sons and daughters and grandchildren. Parveena and Shaukat Shah, who owned the excellence store from which Prabhjot Kaur and all her brothers and sisters had brought school uniforms and shoes all their lives. All the Muslim girls at school, especially Nikhat Azmi, who was a round-faced girl that the trio played with whenever they went to Manjit's house. The list went on and on, and once Prabhjot Kaur started, it seemed to her there was always one more person, one more face that she remembered late at night before drifting into sleep. But Mataji cursed. And Pritam Singh Hansra, Navneet Bhanji's fiancé, wrote letters to Papaji begging him to come to Amritsar to bring the family, all of it, but especially Navneet Bhanji. He had been in Amritsar for a month and a half already. You know yourself what is happening, he wrote, and things can only get worse. But Papaji was paralyzed. He shook his head he shook his head in the morning at the newspaper's reports of flames and murder and ambush trains full of refugees, and in the afternoon he was completely still. He sat cross-legged in an armchair in the courtyard, not even shifting in his seat, as if he were bound with tight chains that slowed even his breathing. He stopped changing his clothes then and sat through the whole day in a banyan and pajamas, his hair loose under a patka and bare feet resting on the brick. Prabhjot Kaur knew he was waiting for something and saw that he had been emptied of vigor, suddenly drained of volition like an upended bucket. 
She remembered how he had bounded from one side of the excavation to the other when the foundation for the house was being dug, how he had not minded that her arms were muddied from grasping at the earth, how he had held up handfuls of mud from the bottom of the pit for her to test for moisture, how he had dusted his hands with great slappings of them, with wide sweeps to the sides and sharp cracks that she had jumped at. There was no more motion in him, and even the blinks of his eyes were slow, mournful sweeps, which, Prab which Prabjot Kaur could follow up and down. One day, she thought, I'll come out, and even that will be stopped, finished, unmoving. She tried not to think this, but it came back as slyly as a persistent fly, this thought, and then its buzzing grew louder and louder until she hit at her forehead with the heels of her hands. I'll go mad, she thought. I will. Finally, Mataji took charge. It was now past summer, and everyone they knew was gone. Manjit and Asha and their families also. One evening, a Pathan policeman rattled the gate. When Iqbal Virji cracked the door an inch, the chain still firmly in place, the policeman flicked in an envelope that landed at Alok Virji's feet. I'll come back in half an hour for an answer, the policeman whispered and went down the lane. Inside the envelope was an unsigned letter. Sardar Saab, the letter said, I will not sign my name, for this letter may be read. But you know who I am. I am your friend who brings fruits from the mountains. Now listen to me as your friend. You must go. You are being talked about, and today or tomorrow your house will be attacked. Understand what I am saying, specifically your house. Your sons are known, and there is much talk about what they have done, and they are in danger, much, much danger. You must go. I will make arrangements. We have known each other for 30 years and have sat in your house and you have come to mine. You must go, my friend. I will look after your house. Papaji listened to Iqbal Virji reading this out and his face sat still as a lump of slack clay, blurry and softened. Mataji took the letter from her son's hand and she put the dupatta over her head and wrapped it around her face. She waited by the gate, and when the small, hollow knock came, she put her mouth to the wood. Tell him we'll go, she said. Be ready tomorrow night at nine, the policeman said. A tempo will come. It will be a thousand rupees per person. No more, but no less. Understand? Yes, Mataji said. I understand. They packed all night and all day. Prabhjot Kaur was amazed at how many things were in a house. Papers, clothes, books, silver jars, photographs, chairs, more clothes, mattresses, expensive combs, shoes. Each person had an array of things that were attached to them with tight knots of many threaded time. Each person had a heavy load of things that couldn't be left behind. Prabhjot Kaur looked at several ranks of dolls she no longer played with, threadbare heads that she hadn't petted in years, but then she tugged and strained at a paper sack trying to fit them all in filled it with these long-ago companions until the paper gave way and tore with a single sharp rip. By late afternoon, the courtyard and the betak were full of tottering bundles tied in sheets and staggeringly heavy suitcases and iron trunks which took four people to lift. Prabhjot Kaur was trying to decide which books to take when Mataji came rushing in. Here, put this on. It was a blue salwar kameez with a square geometric print on rather thick cotton, which Prabhjot Kaur had decided three months ago was fit only for everyday housewear. But here was Mataji, quite impatient. Take, take. 
Prabhjot Kaur took it and wondered at the heavy tug of its weight. Mataji was gone already, out of the door. The salwar was what was heavy. Prabhjot Kaur turned it over and saw that there were little packets of cloth that had been stitched to the waistline on the inside, just under the nada. There was metal in these little secret pockets, gold. She could feel the smooth, slippery density of necklaces and bracelets. When she walked out in the courtyard after changing, she saw that Mataji and all the sisters were wearing the same loose, rough clothing, ready for a strange, for a strange kind of travel, and they were all moving with a care-laden awkwardness, as if they didn't know the edges of their bodies anymore. Money clinked as she walked past Prabhjot Kaur, and yet Prabhjot Kaur was unable to be amused by her attempts to silence herself, her rolling heel-toe walk. Now nobody was saying a word. The sun was gone, sunk, and Prabhjot Kaur sat on a trunk and saw the surfaces of her home recede into dimness. Iqbal Birji came in, his arms muddy, and washed his hands under the hand pump. When the water fell on the brick, it was very loud, the splatter like an explosion, and Prabhjot Kaur flinched. Then, again, silence. Bibiji? It was Rampari. Bibiji? She was whispering. Mataji said nothing. Rampari came in and squatted on the ground next to her, next to the charpai. Where will we go, she said. What will we do? Here, Mataji said, I'll give you some money. Prabhjot Kaur was glad of the darkness because it hid her face. She had both hands to her mouth. For days now, or, even it, or maybe it had even been weeks, she hadn't thought of them. She hadn't thought of Rampari or Natwar or Nimmo or any of the others, the family just outside her window. They had been her students, and she had forgotten them completely. She had retreated to her bed and had given them up. Bibiji, where will we go? How? I don't know, Rampari. Just take this. Prabhjot Kaur could see the long shape of Mataji's arm held out. Rampari was the dark lump at the end of the charpai. Take, Mataji said. The shapes stayed the same, tilted slightly away from each other, the same distance with the same reaching between them, and a breath forced itself down Prabhjot Kaur's chest, pierced it, and in that sudden rough pain, she had the certain knowledge that the world would never be the same again. She wanted to say something, but there was nothing to say. You will leave us, Bibiji, Rampari said. We will die. Vaheguru will look after all of us. Mataji held, out the, held the hand out further and shook it assertively. Rampari sank further into the tight huddle she had made of herself. Prabhjot Kaur thought they might all sit there forever under that huge, still sky. Then Alok Virji came out of his room, loomed out tall above them all. Take it, he said, and he took the money from Mataji's hand and lifted Rampari by the shoulder and walked her past Prabhjot Kaur. There is a kafila leaving two days from now. There will be thousands of people walking. You can go with them. Prabhjot Kaur slipped off the trunk and walked close behind Alok Virji, and though she couldn't see him doing it, she knew that he had thrust the money into Rampari's hand. We can't do anything now, he said. Go. He pushed her through the door and turned and went back to his preparations. Rampari stood in the passageway between the courtyard and the outside, stood very close to the wall. Prabhjot Kaur took a step forward and put her hands against Rampari's side, clutched at her, leaned on her. She could feel the cloth against her face, against her eyes, and there was the, level, there was the living exhalation of another person, sweaty and sharp, bitter. Prabhjot Kaur breathed it in. 
Then Rampari forced her hands open. Down the passage she went, a shadow close to the wall, and Prabhjot Kaur watched her go. The tempo, when it came, an hour late, was not the truck they were expecting, but a creaky black car. The driver was a tiny, bald man, and he was accompanied by the policeman of the afternoon. Hurry, the policeman said, hurry. Iqbal Virji and Alok Virji loaded up the boot of the car and tied it down with rope. Two trunks and various bundles went on the roof, and inside the car, on the floor, around the seats, they had bundles. But then the car was full. Come, Iqbal Virji said. As they slipped past the Baitak, Prabhjot Kaur saw the figures clustered by the corner to the left. She couldn't see any faces, but knew it was Rampari and Nimmo and Natwar and the rest. All the way to the gate, she stumbled against packages that were being left behind. The engine of the car was already thumping. Papaji sat on the right in the back seat, then Mataji, then Navneet Bhanji and Mani, and then Iqbal Virji. Prabhjot Kaur sat in the front between Alok Virji and the bald driver. The policeman patted the bonnet of the car. Go, he said, go quickly. As they went, Prabhjot Kaur twisted on the seat, came up on her knees to look back. But all she saw was the policeman standing quite erect in front of the gate, and Mataji and Navneet Bhanji and Mani curled up in the back seat, heads low, like little children settled in to sleep on a long journey. Get down, Alok Virji said, and caught Prabhjot Kaur by the neck and yanked her low. His voice shook, and now Prabhjot Kaur was very afraid. Her face was against his side again and against the seat, but her eyes were strained open, and she could see past the driver's elbow and through the steering wheel and through the glass. She could see the shape of homes and shops, the white of signs, and the sudden deeper black when a street opened out. They turned and turned again, and the engine grunted and choked, and Prabhjot Kaur was completely unable to tell where they were. Then a series of pops sounded into the sky that Prabhjot Kaur could see through the dirty glass. Pops like fup, fup, as if a children had burst as if a child had burst a balloon, and then a series of others very quickly. It was a happy sound, but the car jogged and twisted and came to a halt, sliding Prabhjot Kaur forward. And now it went backwards. Backwards and backwards so fast that Prabhjot Kaur twisted her hands around Alok Virji's shirt and was now crying. She could hear men's voices shouting and echoing. And Iqbal Virji saying, take this left here and then the Ravi road. The car moved forward now, turning to the left and throwing Prabhjot Kaur again. They were moving fast now. She felt it in the vibrations jolting her body. Orange light filled the inside of the car, spiraling through the glass and brightening every corner, and she could see the round silver rupee dangling from the keychain, every detail of the king emperor's face. With a sound like a huge threshing watermill, the flames towered up, for a moment filling the windscreen and the window, and she shut her eyes. Another turn, this time to the left, and glass broke somewhere, and then a sound so close and loud and so ugly that Prabhjot Kaur knew instantly that it was a gunshot. The car lurched violently from side to side. A screech filled Prabhjot Kaur's head. She flew forward and felt the impact of metal against her forehead and a flowering, tinny echo inside which swallowed her up. Then she was lying on her side, listening to a babble of voices, a continuous scream not very far away, and she could not tell where she was until the dark bar above twisted and receded and became one of the spokes of the steering wheel. 
And again, that barking explosion right above her head. This time she saw a flash, and she twisted herself and thrust herself further into shadowed space under the wheel. And then again a shot, and she shut her eyes. She could hear Mataji weeping. Other than that hoarse gargling sound, it was very quiet. Prabhjot Kaur tried to still the movement of her knees, a shaking which grew from the convulsing of her stomach. She was, she was convinced that this would give her away. She held her right hand against her right thigh and pressed it down hard. Metal scraped, and she knew it was the door of the car, and there was nowhere to go, and she wanted to scream, but she held it in, fought against it with her muscles. Nikki, Nikki. It was Iqbal Virji. He drew at her softly, and she came out of her coil and held on to his arms and cried. He got her out of the car, and she wrapped herself around him. It's all right, he said. But Mataji was sitting on the road, and Mani was trying to comfort her. And Papaji leaning against the back of the car, his head low and his hands on his knees, and spittle hanging from his mouth. Alok Virji a little down the road, his body twisted to one side as he tried to see around a corner. Just beyond him, there was a shape on the ground, like a bundle of clothes that had come apart and scattered its contents haphazardly. It was a man's body. It was the driver. Alok Virji turned. We have to get out of here. I don't know how to drive, Iqbal Virji said mildly. They both looked stunned, as if this one skill they had forgotten to add to their sporting repertoire had suddenly revealed its hidden importance, its secret meaning. And then Mataji stopped crying and said, kill them. Her weeping had been so constant and so loud that when it stopped, Prabhjot Kaur felt keenly how quiet it had become all over again, after all the noise. It was rather nice. But who did she mean? Mataji looked at her husband and at one son and then the other. Kill them, she said, before they take them too. Prabhjot Kaur turned her head towards the car and then to the street. Navneet Bhanji was gone. Prabhjot Kaur had not noticed until now, but now it was impossible to escape this fact. Navneet Bhanji had been taken. Alok Virji came towards Mataji, and Prabhjot Kaur saw that in his right hand he had a pistol, and in his left something long and curving. The front of his shirt hung down on the left side like a flap, revealing the inverted arc of his chest. There was blood on his neck, black and flowing, she could see it. And dangling not very far from her face, from Iqbal Virji's hand, was a kirpan, no, a sword. Kill them, Mataji said again. Mani's face was hidden from Prabhjot Kaur, darkened. Prabhjot Kaur could see only her unmistakable thin shoulders, her forearms as she held Mataji. Prabhjot Kaur stepped away from Iqbal Virji and raised her head and saw that his pagdi had come off. His hair hung in a loose coil over his forehead. His mouth was shaking. He was looking at her, and she saw him fight for control, bite down on his lower lip to stop it from trembling. Her fear now felt different, like a long, continuous fall from a great height. But in spite of this hurtling drop, she felt embarrassment for her brother. She lowered her head and waited. She was waiting for death, a coon ordered by her mother. I'll drive, she heard Papaji say. I can drive. Of course, Prabhjot Kaur thought. He used to be a salesman. The car started on the first try, but then they had to push it back and up from the gutter it had dropped its front left wheel into. 
Prabhjot Kaur turned round and round on the dark street, unable to stay still, trying to face everywhere and afraid of what was behind her back. Then they were all in, and Prabhjot Kaur this time crouched down as far as she could get in the front seat. She pushed at the bundle in front of her with her legs, and when it gave way a little, she forced her legs and hips into the little space she had made. She wished she could get under the bundle. She wished there was a little secret space under the seat she could tuck herself into. She wished for a dark little metal hole which nothing would ever be able to get into where she could get away from Mataji's horrible croaking sobs, her Vaheguru, Vaheguru, and her Japji Sahib, which pierced all the clatter of the car and Prabhjot Kaur's own clamorous breathing. She saw nothing. She kept her eyes closed. But there was a change in the sound of the road, a difference in the texture of the black under her eyelids, and she knew they had left the city behind. Near dawn, they came upon two trucks of soldiers stopped by a well. They approached them slowly, but just before the car stopped, Prabhjot Kaur opened her eyes. The sky was a neutral gray, the color halfway between black and white. She had never stayed up all night before. Stop there. Um, so they do get away. Um, the soldiers take them past um, walk thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of walking people, and they go to Amritsar, which is on the Indian side of the border. Um, so uh, I, I think we have a little time if anybody has any questions or wants to talk about gangsters. <laughs> uh, go ahead. So the thing that I enjoyed the most about your novel is the um, way that you incorporate the, the Bambaya dialect into the language right. about explanation. Could you give me a take of that? And also about how, you know, when the characters are code switching between you know, Marathi or Bambaya and English, how, you know, your, your English and the novel changes in Right. Well, um, my intent was actually really, really simple. I just wanted to use the English that we actually speak in Bombay um, so that if I were sitting in a bar in Bombay telling one of these stories to a friend of mine, um, the English that I would speak would be sprinkled with Hindi and Marathi and local slang, and we would assume knowledge on each other's parts. Um, and this, I think, is a, is a I, I guess, a feature of any urban part of India now, but especially of Bombay, which is a city of immigrants. Um, and it works in all directions, so that if you're speaking Hindi, you drop in little pieces of English and other stuff. Um, so I, that's all I wanted to do, was to just to catch the rhythm of that, and then um, be able to use the, the sound and, and the, the texture of the different words um, in the text. And I actually didn't realize that there was so much um, other languages besides English in it until I'd finished, and my wife was the first person to read the manuscript, and she said, there's a lot of stuff in here. Um, so that was pretty much it. What's been interesting, um, having it read outside Bombay, has been that some Indian readers even who live, um, say, in the south of the country, will not understand at first, um, at first encounter some of the slang, the underworld slang. It's all really local. And, and the other thing that people seem to pick up a lot is obviously the, the bad words, <laughs> which is funny. I mean, people have referred to it in, in reviews and so on as, you know, 
teaches you how to curse in Hindi, <laughs> which is interesting because um, I have a full glossary on my website, and to do that, the back end was in a database. And so when you start putting stuff into a database, you come up with interesting numbers. And it turns out, I think there's somewhere between 20 and 30 bad words out of 900-something you know, in the entire glossary, but those are the ones that people really remember. <laughs> I think also because they're repeated the most you know, and, and people sort of use it as a kind of, uh, you know, as, as one does in English here, you, you often use it just as an exp, uh, expression of surprise or, or discontent or something. Anything else? Go ahead. Yeah, my question is, uh, so as you get experience in like, the Indian underworld, uh, crime and intrigue? Well, um, the protagonist of this book, one of the protagonists, Sartaj Singh, who is Prabhjot Kaur's son when she grows up and gets older, um, is actually a character who appeared in my last book, um, which is a collection of short stories called Love and Longing in Bombay. And it's a police story, a police procedural in some sense. Um, and, but it has nothing to do with organized crime. It's a domestic murder that sort of is the engine of that story. But at that time, I'd gotten to some, know some policemen and journalists, uh, crime journalists. And over the years, um, I'd stayed in touch with a few of them and become really close with a couple of them. Um, and then, I guess, what happened was that, that fear provoked this book, more or less. And what I mean by that is that if you lived in India, anywhere in India, but particularly in Bombay, um, during the 80s and 90s, you were aware of the expanding reach of the underworld over every aspect of your life. Right? I mean, po politics and commerce and, um, you know, the municipal um, corporation is rotted with corruption, you know, and so forth and so forth. And the level of violence was just escalating to amazing degrees. Um, in the early 90s, for the first time, um, an automatic weapon was used on the streets of Bombay in a gangland hit. Um, and so as the economy grew, these people also wanted their share of it, right? And they were fighting over it, and then the police was killing them. And so it was as if, you know, you, you would open the morning paper and it was like a cricket score or something, you know, six killed here this morning, uh, police kills two shooters elsewhere, things like that. And then it started to come very, very close to home for me. Um, my family back home is connected to the film industry there. My mother is a screenwriter, and I have two sisters, one of whom is a screenwriter and director, and the other is a film critic married to a producer-director. <laughs> so, so except for my father, God bless him, <laughs> nice corporate guy who supported us all. Um, <laughs> um, the rest of us are in the biz, and I've been around on the peripheries of it for the last couple of decades, and the film industry has traditionally been the target of extortion by the gangsters. And the way it works is that, especially if you're a producer um, who has a film coming out or just has been released, one morning you'll get a phone call, and the guy on the other end will say, so-and-so bhai boss says that you have to deliver these many millions of rupees by next Tuesday. Um, and it's sort of like a tax. And what you're supposed to do then is to negotiate. You say, no, no, you know, I'm a poor man. My last three films flopped. I really can't afford this. And then talk them down, but then you do have to show up with the suitcases full of cash. And if you don't, they will try and kill you. And so I knew people, friends, and acquaintances um, uh, in the industry who had been threatened, who had been shot at, who had been wounded, and escaped narrowly. 
Um, and then my brother-in-law, the producer, director guy, got these calls and refused to pay up, and which meant that the very next day, his house was surrounded by armed guards. And they spent a couple of years in which he couldn't walk to the street corner without having these men with you know, automatic weapons trailing along behind him. And it was strange how quickly this became normal to all of us. You know, because for the first couple of weeks, it really seemed surreal. And then I found myself you know, getting to know these cops and chatting with them about cricket matches and making jokes with them. And my little niece and nephew were then growing up in a world where this was just part of their landscape. So it sort of, I, I started to think about why this was happening. And so then I asked my, my um, friends in the police force and the crime journalists to get me into conversations with whoever they thought could talk to me about this. And so it was a huge kind of cross-section of people, you know, um, people who work uh, in non-governmental organizations in the slums, policemen, other crime journalists, um, sociologists and historians, and then also some people on the other side of the legal line, uh, which gets fairly gray in Bombay. Um, and so I did end up, you know, sort of getting to see and meet some of the, the players of the underworld, as it were. Um, and then the book became an attempt, I guess, finally, because of this scattershot research, to trace the connections between organized crime and politics, both on the local level and at a much larger level. Um, some of the organized crime gangs, which are called companies in, in Bombay, are used by the local intelligence agencies um, in the subcontinent for information gathering, for logistics, for moving people across borders, and as kind of extra constitutional arms. You know, so if you have some really, something really nasty to do, it's nice to be able to give it to these guys and then min- maintain deniability. Um, and then you know, the connections with, with all of this, with the modern media and the uses of religion, uh, you know, which if you're talking about politics in today's world, you're talking about religion also. And so (laughs) the book, which I thought originally was going to be a 250- or 300-page book, suddenly found itself expanding into this monster. (laughs) That was a very long answer to a fairly short question. (laughs) Go ahead. Not yet, I don't think. (laughs) Well, um, I made it very clear to the people that I talked to. I mean, the first thing I would always say when I met them was I'm I'm writing fiction, um, writing a novel, um, so I'll never use your name and I'll never use any information which will put you at risk. And sometimes that didn't quite translate a couple... I mean, some of them were baffled by the idea of somebody writing fiction, but then they would say, oh, like you mean like you're doing research for a movie? Because they're all very keen watchers of movies, and there have been lots of films been made, sometimes by the gangsters themselves, <laughs> about the underworld. So, and, and so everyone in, almost everyone in the book, um, I think everyone in the book, is a composite character. There's no one-to-one identification. Um, but, you know, I should say also that the gang boys aren't big readers <laughs> of big novels, especially in English. Um, but the, the Hindi translation is going to come out, um, I think, sometime soon this year. So then that will change the readership a lot. So we'll see what happens. But, I mean, as long as nobody feels insulted. You know, they're very full of machismo. So if, if somebody feels that like you've shown them in a bad light, 
then they get offended. Uh, other than that, they're fine with publicity. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I mean, that's the strange thing that happened to me was that at first, um, obviously, I was full of fear and anger and, and disgust. You know, I mean, you think, who are these people who are doing this to my family? They're monsters. You know? in, in Hindi, my mother uses, would use the word for them, rakshas, demons. And then the more that I actually talked to people and met people, not just the gangsters, but the cops and so forth, the truly terrifying thing was how ordinary they were, uh, how violence and, and, and hideous kind of ruthlessness comes not out of another species, but people very much like us. And, and I mean, as I guess in, in the little section that I read, suddenly people who've been neighbors for you know, their whole lives suddenly seem to find it in themselves to turn on each other like this. And so what I found myself wanting to do was to catch that kind of mundane reality of, of the gangster's life and the terror that they live in. They live in more terror than actually that which they directed at us. One of the first people that I met was a, um, a boss called Hussein Ustra, Hussein the Razor. <laughs> and, and we were... Um, um, a friend of mine who's a crime journalist and I were told to wait on a street corner in South Bombay and then some little kid came and led us down a bunch of lanes and then up um, down a very crowded street and um, up a flight of stairs and through this green door. And as I was going through the green door, my hand happened to brush against it and I realized it was metal. And so this guy had fortified himself inside this place, and then he had a bank of closed-circuit television cameras, and he had been watching us come down the street from you know, 100 feet away. And so there was just a sense of um, all-pervasive fear. You know? and, and when I asked him, uh, one of the questions I asked him you know, was, how do you think you'll get out of this? Is the game ever over? Do you retire to a happy you know, Darjeeling or something? And he said, no, for me, there's no end to the game. I've dug holes for lots of people. Somebody will dug, dig a hole for me. And I talked to him through that entire year. He was a very smart guy, really intelligent. And so when I needed specific information, I would try and get in touch with him to ask him, you know, how do you steal an election? <laughs> Stuff like that. <laughs> Um, and then he, he, one day he was killed. You know, my friend, the journalist, called me from Bombay and said, you know, Hussein Hustra got bumped off tonight. Um, so there was this sense that I got of, you know, uh, like I was saying, the banality of evil, to use Hannah Arendt's um, phrase. And so I wanted, I, was, my, I guess my attempt was to make the reader sense that and at least in part identify oneself with somebody like Ganesh Gaitonde, you know, his huge ambition, his blindness to himself, his anger, all of that. Are we good? One more, okay. Well, I had to, I think like many people growing up in India, in my generation, I had a very mixed set of, of influences. Um, the first stories that I actually remember hearing were um, tales from the big epics, you know, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, which were told to me by my grandmother and my uh, mother and my aunts. Um, and I remember being taken, you know, to see performances of those, and I think that had a big impact. And then I read 
um, once I started going to school, then you start reading slowly, reading authors in Hindi. Um, and at, when I was doing this, there were a lot of people from the 30s and 40s and 50s that were your standard texts. And then pretty soon after that, um, you know, suddenly in grade six, you encountered Shakespeare. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then slowly they introduced you to the Victorian. So um, I got this sort of very mixed kind of bag of narrative models, which somehow in some weird way fit together. So I'm still a big reader of, of Thackeray and Trollope, not so much Dickens. Um, and then as a teenager on my own, I discovered the American modernists especially Fitzgerald, and just was um, entranced and decided that the United States was where people made great art. <laughs> and I had to come you know, to be a writer. Um, and then in the more recent years, there's been this whole slew, this couple of generations of people working in English in India that's been just amazing. Uh, there's this huge, broad range of form and style um, and subject, which... I really, I mean, you never know what's going to come up next month. And it's a really exciting moment to be writing in India right now, I think. Um, both in terms of the, the sort of um, fever of um, people doing new things, but also as the economy grows, the publishing industry is growing and more and more books are being sold. I recently heard somebody, a scholar in Delhi, say that more books have been sold in the Indian, Indian subcontinent over the last 20 years than in the 200 previous to that. So something's happening. <laughs> well, thank you for coming, and good night. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.